But along the way in our sermon series, in Mark's Gospel, we have noted, as we've worked our way through Mark's Gospel, we've noted a number of literary uh, devices that the authors use. Isn't that the case? So we've studied these various chapters. There's a lot of different techniques that we've noted that the author uses and adopts. I think most memorable of all of these literary devices is what is called the Markin sandwich technique. If you're part of LCPC, you definitely will remember the Markin sandwich technique. I'll be honest with you, I kind of reluctantly mention it because everyone suddenly... And their tummies begin to grumble a little bit and they start thinking about their Sunday lunch. Uh, the Mark and Sandwich technique. You remember what it is? When Mark interrupts the telling of a story and he interrupts that story to insert a secondary account in the middle. He inserts the meat in the sandwich. Something that we have noted a number of times in this gospel. And if you're alert and awake this morning, it is something. If you look at your page, you will see he does again. What does he do here? Do you see it in front of you? He interrupts the story of the plot against Jesus. That's at the beginning and at the end, isn't it? Like he interrupts the story of the plot to insert an account of Jesus anointing at Bethany. So what are we dealing with just now? We're dealing with a, a Markin sandwich. That's what we've got uh, at the moment. Now, I guess, I, I guess there's a question we kind of got to answer there. I mean, why does he do it? Like, is he just showing off? I mean, is it just a flourish? Like, why does he construct things like this? Well, sometimes in the gospel, Mark constructs things in this sort of sandwich technique in order to explain the first account. I'm sure you see what I mean. Like he inserts a secondary story in the middle because that secondary story very often sheds light on what that first story is about. So sometimes it's, that's the reason. Other times though, other times he constructs in a sandwich in order to point you and me to one of the main themes of the gospel. And I'll tell you this, nothing. That's what I think Mark is doing here. Because you step back a little bit, think about what we've got. Think about what Mark's doing. He's taking a story of treachery towards Jesus, and he interrupts it with a story of faithfulness and devotion to Jesus. Do you see what he's doing? Again, he's showing us a contrast about discipleship. Isn't that what's happening here? It's a contrast that as we go into the passion narrative, chapter 14 that we begin today, really in constructing it like this, Mark is saying to you, you've only got two responses that there can be to this coming death of Jesus. There's only two responses. You can either follow Judas in his betrayal, or you can follow this woman of Bethany in her unashamed devotion to Christ. Do you see that? Why he's constructed this the way he has. And just now, obviously, we're going to consider this in a little depth. But I'll be honest with you from the outset, for let's say 90% of this morning's sermon, we're going to focus on this woman at Bethany. And we'll maybe at the end say something of Judas Iscariot. So, first thing that we see is this, this woman, this positive example of cross-centered 
devotion. Let's think about this woman of Bethany. Now, I heard it said a couple of weeks ago that increasingly what's happening in London is that tourists are not staying smack bang in the center of the city as they used to do. Uh, that what's happening is that tourists will come to London, they will actually stay a bit further out of London, and they'll travel in, because of the cost, they'll travel in on a daily basis to see the sights. Now, that's what we've seen actually in this crucial week in the gospel. For very, very, very different reasons, that's what Jesus has done, isn't it? We notice that, that he's been staying outside of the city, he's been staying in a place called Bethany, on his last week, and every day it seems that he's been traveling first thing in the morning into, uh, into Jerusalem. Now, what we're dealing with here is maybe the Wednesday of that final week. And you can see that on this Wednesday, actually, Jesus seems to linger in Bethany a little longer. Because where is he at verse 3? Do you notice it with me? He stays in Bethany. And he enjoys a meal at Simon the leper's house. That's more than likely a former leper who's showing hospitality to Jesus. Now, do you see what happens as they're enjoying this, this meal? They're reclining at the table. And a woman comes in and, and she pours oil on our Lord. I think you and I have to get this right. See this instance that we have here? I think it's very much a different occasion from that occasion, that instance in Luke chapter 7. I'm sure you know the one where there's another anointing with oil and the woman uses her hair to wipe Jesus' feet. We're familiar with this, yes? That is a different occasion to this here, more than likely. But then let me say this. This, what we're dealing with here, is more than likely the same occasion that is mentioned in the Gospel of John. And that's important. Because what do we learn in John? We learn that this woman of Bethany most likely was Mary. You know, the sister of Lazarus, the sister of Martha, that's who you and I are dealing with here. So even now we're getting to grips with what we've got happening in Bethany. Now, how, friends, how do you want us to play this today? What, 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 what do you come to church want? Do you want us just to note, oh, she does a nice thing? Pour his oil in Jesus. Do we just note this? I think, okay, it's got to be nice. Close the book, sing a song, go home. Is that what we ask? No, why we're here? Aren't we here to look at the detail of God's word? To, to listen attentively to what God is saying through his word. Isn't that why we're here? So why do we do this? Let us notice one or two facets about this act of love from this woman. How about this as the first? We notice that this is wholehearted devotion from this woman. Wholehearted. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, ladies in the church, in the congregation just now, women and girls, you've got to speak to me later on and tell me if I'm wrong about this. But uh, isn't it true that, yes, if your boyfriend or your husband, uh, he comes home with a bottle of perfume for you, then that is, that's, that's a nice thing. You're happy with that? But isn't it true that there is a world of difference between your husband, your, your boyfriend, bringing you a big bottle of Chanel or Givenchy or something like that? Big difference between that and if he comes with a bottle of super drugs, old brand, and perfume. There is, isn't there? 
uh, he doesn't say from past experience, but it is a difference. Chanel or maybe Tesco value eau de toilette, you know, there's, there's a world of difference between those two things. Well, I see, I think we see that this act is wholehearted devotion, even in the type of perfume and oil that this woman uses to anoint Jesus. Did you notice what it is in verse 4? Now, Mark makes it clear it's what is called pure nard. Now, what I think you need to understand is that that is oil, that is perfume that's taken from a herb. Now, get this, that had to be imported from India in the first century world. Imported to, to the Middle East from India. Do, do you get already a sense that this is, this is special stuff that we're dealing with, right? Now, that is then, I think, added to by what we are told, what you are told about the cost of the oil. Now, do, did you see what we are told? If you look at verse 5, you'll see it. People complain about what she's done. They say, this should have been sold. How much, friends? Do you see? 300, more than 300 denarii. Now, can you think back earlier in the sermon series? Can you work that out for yourself, how much that would have been? We're talking there, (laughs) it's amazing, we're talking there about an annual wage, a a year's wage. Do you see what, we put it in contemporary terms. Isn't that stunning? I mean, this oil that is poured on Jesus here is worth... 20 grand? 25,000 pounds? Snatch shed light on the lavishness of what this woman is doing. Remarkable. And you see that? That, I think, is utterly confirmed for us by the manner in which she goes about doing this. Now, look at me for a moment. Does she do this? Does she enter the room and take this flask pour some oil onto her hand and apply it to Jesus. Is that what happens? Look at the end of verse 3. Look at the words. This woman enters the room, takes the flask and breaks it. Now, you're not with me. Does that not speak volumes about her love and devotion? Do you understand what's going on? There's not even a thought for keeping any of this back. When she takes it, she smashes it, she breaks it, she pours all of the oil on the Lord. Do you see? This is, this is all for him. This is all for the Lord Jesus Christ. This is, isn't it? It's lavish, exuberant. It is generous devotion and love and worship for Christ. All for him. All of it for him. And I'm saying to you this morning, doesn't that teach you and I a crucial lesson about Christian discipleship? Because I'm asking you this, friends. What is it you see from Mark 14? What is it that Christ wants from us, his people? What does Christ want from you? What does he want from me? I'm going to tell you. He wants our everything. That's what Jesus wants. That's what you see in Mark 14. Christ wants it all. Like he wants your time, he wants your heart, he wants your affection, he wants your energy. He wants your life to revolve around him. He wants you to be so filled with infatuation and obsession with him that you would willingly see everything that you have, everything you own, use for him, for his name, for for his glory. He wants it all. 
And what is the most uncomfortable reality? Many of us in here today do not feel like that toward the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that right? Isn't it the case that that many are here at LCPC this morning by the skin of our teeth? That, that we did not jump out of bed this morning with exuberance and passion about worshipping God. That we have trudged here. That we are, even as Christians, trudging through the Christian life. Now, what do we learn in Mark 14? I think we learn that you and I as Christians must not settle for that sort of indifference. That sort of half-heartedness towards Jesus Christ. So how about this? As a most practical step for us as Christians. Today, and I don't mean put it off. I mean today, this afternoon, why do we not pray about this? Why do you not go home this afternoon and pray for renewed zeal and fervor for Jesus Why don't we lift up our voices to God to ask Him for greater love, greater devotion for His name and for His gospel? Because what are we seeing in this portion of Scripture? Wait a minute. How does the hymn writer put it? What does he say? He says, Were the whole realm of nature mine, that would be a present far too small because love so amazing, so divine, it demands my... So, my life, my all. You see, it is wholehearted devotion from me. A second element that we see about this woman's act is that, beautifully, it is a defended devotion. A defended devotion. Friends, have you uh, ever been invited to a very posh a dinner party at someone else's house. And my gran had an expression years ago. She would say, uh, talk about dressing up to the nines. And I have no idea what that expression means. But I get the idea. Have we ever sort of really dressed up nice and posh and gone to someone else's house for a very formal, very nice, posh dinner party? Have you ever done that? It's not usually how I roll at all. I have done it once. I can remember, and I can say that it was an unmitigated disaster area, um, because what happened was that the hostess, uh, the wife who was hosting this posh meal, I think she was nervous about how it would go, and she maybe drank a little bit too much, and, and spent the whole evening fighting with her husband. And so you can imagine the sort of tension for us as guests, we got dressed up, go to this, and don't know where to look as they fight and bicker. Don't you think it would have been a little bit like that at Simon the leper's house? You see what happens. This woman pours oil on the Lord and the people, the guests, hate it. Don't they? Like, do you see, in Mark, he underlines the fact that they're actually really angry about this. Now they are, the word he uses is indignant. Now I'm asking you, do you see why the guests are enraged? Do you see what's going on here? This act of pouring on oil is far too elaborate. 
to them. Isn't it? This act towards Jesus is far too lavish. I mean, these people, they are, they're willing to be a meal. They're willing to be near Jesus, to tolerate Jesus, aren't they? They're, maybe it's a feast in Jesus' honor, this at Simon the leper's house. And they're, okay, we'll be, but this, this display of enthusiasm for the Lord Jesus Christ. They cannot tolerate this. This is, this is unwelcome. This is, in their eyes, unseemly. And I wonder if you see this. I wonder if you see how relevant that picture is for you and I living in Britain today. Let me give you a quote that I read, probably familiar to you. I read it this week. Chew on this quote. The author says this, that the world has never had a problem with religion in moderation. And isn't that what you and I are seeing in the United Kingdom today? Like what, this, what's happening in the society? We see them, we see it wrestle with Islamic extremism, don't we? We see our culture wrestle with Islamic terrorism. And do you know what's happening? You and I in the Church of Jesus Christ are being thrown into the same pot. And what is the message that our society is saying to you and to me? They're saying, we're okay with half-hearted religion. We're okay with half-hearted Christianity. We're all right if you want to occasionally go to church. That's fine with us. We think it's a little bit weird, but go with it. We're fine with uh, with you adopting some sort of quasi-Christian type ideas. Again, we don't like it too much, but we'll tolerate it. But what is society saying to you and I? Saying we step over the line if we take our faith seriously. We step over the line if we are enthusiastic about the Lord Jesus Christ. And friends, I really genuinely believe that this is a problem that you and I will face increasingly over the next few years in this country. That just as in Mark 14, enthusiasm for Jesus Christ, it will not for us in this country be tolerated. Now, wait a minute, what do we do? What do you do? This is our culture. There's no getting away from this. So what do we do? Isn't it marvelous? what you see happen in Mark 14. Because no sooner have these people opposed this woman. What happens, friends? Immediately, Jesus steps in. Immediately, he speaks up and he defends this woman. And I want you to bear that in mind, friends. Listen to this. Your Savior, he desires your public enthusiasm for his name. That pleases him. We have to continue preaching, speaking of Jesus Christ. And I say, even if we are not defended today, we know what's going to happen, don't we? We know what awaits us on the final day. We know what happens in the day of judgment. What happens to the face, to the voices, to the noise of all the opposition on the day of judgment? What happens? This happens. The Lord Jesus Christ, he stands on the day of judgment. And he will defend those who are his. So this is wholehearted devotion. It is also, praise God, defended devotion. But there is a third aspect here 
Because this, from Mary, it is also cherished devotion to its cherished. How about this? Follow me on this. If what we were reading, what Adrian read in Mark 14, if it was just an act of love, wouldn't you agree with me that it would still be the most marvelous section of Scripture? You understand? That if this was Mary just looking at her Lord, seeing him as the Son of God, being filled with affection, and pouring on this oil, don't you agree it would still be priceless? But what do you know? What do we know? There was more to this act than meets the eye. Did you notice what we were told in verse 8? That what Mary is doing here in pouring on oil is preparing the Lord Jesus Christ for burial. Now, what has really intrigued the commentators and the scholars over the generations is whether Mary knew anything about this. Now, you, do you see what I mean? Like, how did you read it when, when Adrian read it out? How did you follow it? What did you think? Did, where would you go? Do you think she only was pouring on oil because she loved Jesus? Or did she know that what she was doing was anointing him for burial? Which way would you go? Tell you which way I'll go. Though we can't be categorical. I think, I think she got it. Like I think this point in Bethany, in that room, I think Mary, I think she understood. And I'll tell you why I think she got that she was preparing him for burial. Over the last number of chapters, Jesus has spoken more clearly about his coming suffering and death. Haven't we seen that in the sermon series? Chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10, chapter 11, I could go on. Jesus has said to his followers, those around, he's spoken. He said, I'm going to suffer. This is going to be a particular type of death. I'm going to suffer and I'm going to die. And who are we saying this woman in Bethany is? Mary. And what do we know of Mary? What do you know of Mary, the sister of Martha? You know, if nothing else, that she loved to listen to Jesus. Didn't she? Didn't she love to sit at his feet and absorb everything that he had to say? Do you see? She knew. Like she understood that this man, her Lord, was soon to die a criminal's death. That because of the nature, the, the, the fact that it was a criminal's death, that there would be no later opportunity to prepare him. So she had to do it. She knew. She saw that this was a, a death of suffering ahead. Do you see? Friends, do you see? Now that is a marvelous thing. But I do think that the way the Lord Jesus Christ reacts to this woman is greater still. Now, if we were to talk about this just now, what would you say Jesus does? How does he respond to Mary? I think the boys and girls, they perhaps noticed in the portion of Scripture that Jesus says that he will ensure that Mary is remembered. Isn't that right? Did you get that? Yes. 
The fact that so far as and so long as the gospel is proclaimed, that this woman's act will be remembered. And that is marvelous. Don't we think that? It's fulfilled even today, isn't it? Do you know what I think is even better than that? Is the way that your Lord describes this act in verse 6. Would you look there with me at verse 6? Look at the words and the description for the Son of God. He says, what she has done is a beautiful thing. I don't know about you this morning, but I think that there is one of the greatest encouragements to Christian service imaginable. Because you see what we're learning? When our God, our great sovereign redeemer God, when he looks at your Christian service, What happens? When he looks at our service, when he sees it come from a heart that loves him, a heart that is grateful for suffering and death in Calvary, what happens when God sees that, friends? He cherishes your Christian service. Isn't that marvelous? Your witness, your subtle witness at the workplace, when you are on the stewarding road, when you're teaching Sunday school, when that comes out of this place of gratitude to the cross, God delights in you and your service. He cherishes it. It is to him a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful thing. What a spur to serve the living God. Now, what do we say at the very start of this sermon? We said that Mark constructs a sandwich. Why? To draw out a contrast. So let me tell you how I want to end the sermon this morning. We've seen Mary. I want to just make a word on Judas Iscariot. My friend, isn't it interesting Isn't it interesting how this plan and plot to kill and murder Jesus, isn't it interesting who comes up with this plot? I mean, it's not the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They are, yes, they are thinking, they are scheming, they are planning, but it's not until we return to the end of the sandwich that we learn this came down to one man. That the blame here is laid all at the feet of Judas. And I think uh, you and I just now, we could speculate about his motives, why Judas wants Jesus killed. Because wouldn't you agree it seems to be tied up with money? John's gospel tells us that Judas was in that room. That Judas saw this anointing with oil. John tells us that Judas was angry about this. He wanted that money sold so he could put his hand into the money bag. And doesn't it seem to be the final straw that now Judas is willing to betray Jesus so long as he benefits materially? You and I, we could speculate about the motive. It's money, it seems. I do not want to do that. I want to end by asking you to do something for me. And it's not easy. I want to ask you to look with new eyes on what is to you a very, very, very familiar truth. Would you do that? Would you consider anew that our Savior was betrayed 
by one of his own. And I know you know that. I know that is familiar to you. But is it not still remarkable that this plot to execute Jesus, it was not concocted by a Sadducee or a Pharisee, not concocted by that scribe in the temple who questioned Jesus. It was not concocted by a Roman soldier who was sick of all this public disturbance, who came up with the plan. One of the people closest to Jesus do you see what happens if you open that up? Do you see what it means? It means Jesus betrayed by someone who heard him preach. It's not stunning. He heard the Son of God declare God's word. It means Jesus was betrayed by someone who actually initially saw something really attractive in Jesus in the gospel. So attractive that he was willing to leave so much behind and initially follow Jesus. Jesus is betrayed, listen, by someone who was willing to go out into the world and tell other people the gospel and the good news. And yet, he's betrayed by, by somebody who would not yield, who would not bow, who would not submit. To the Lordship of Jesus Christ. I think, friends, we see in that a terrifying lesson. And that it is that nominalism is ultimately treachery towards Christ. I mean, isn't that what you see with Judas? Friends, it's not enough for you to respect the Christ. It's not enough for you to like Jesus and to spend time with Jesus and to listen to Jesus, sing to Jesus, to be at Jesus' church. It's not enough if that is all there is, if there is no repentance and belief. Do you see in Judas what you are doing? Ultimately, you are betraying the Christ that God has made you to worship. And so all that's left is for me to verbalize the question that Mark is asking in the way that this is constructed. Here's the question. Which of the two is it for you? I mean, where do you pray? Not the person next to you, not other people. Where do you stand before God spiritually? This morning, is it true that you... Stand next to Mary, this woman of Bethany. Do you stand with her in your love, your devotion, your gratitude to the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you? Or is it true that before the Almighty today, you stand next to Judas Iscariot in his disloyalty, his betrayal, and his treachery towards God. Friends, which is it for you? Which? Surely, in light of what Christ has done, surely in light that he has died, a criminal's death to set us guilty free, surely we stand with me. Surely we stand with this woman of Bethany. We follow her and we follow her, don't we? In loving with all of our hearts the Lord Jesus Christ the Son of God.
Let's pray.